We're going to cover two chapters today. And the reason we're going to cover two chapters today is 90% of these two chapters are names. All right? So rather than I just look like a fool up here trying to pronounce names that none of us in here could pronounce anyway, um, you can read them on your own. We will highlight some of them, though, because some of them are, are really stand out and there's some lessons for it. But here's what happens. The first part of Nehemiah is about building the walls. The last part of Nehemiah is about people building their lives from the inside out. And they're making a lot of changes in their lives. So the first part of it is more the external, the physical building part of it. The the second part of the book is about internally, what happens in the lives of the people. So what's happened is, at this point, we have the walls built, but there's nobody living inside of it. So that pretends to be a problem if you have a city with no people in it. So they need people to come into it. So here's what they do. Nehemiah chapter 11, here's what it says. Now the leaders of the people dwell in Jerusalem. The rest of the people cast lot to bring one out of ten to dwell in Jerusalem, the holy city. And nine-tenths were to dwell in other cities. And the people blessed all the men who were willingly offered themselves to dwell at Jerusalem. So one of the things that you have happen here is right off the bat, they come up with a lottery system. And they say, okay, one out of ten of you is moving into the city. Now, I want you to think about that for a minute, because for, four, for anywhere between 40 and 70 years, these people have lived outside of the city. So let me ask you something. When you've lived somewhere for 40 to 70 years, how comfortable are you picking up roots and moving into a city? And for those of you who live in the country, how willing are you to move into the city? Because that's what was being asked of these people. And so you see a large group of people, a little over 3,000 people, that are literally going to uproot their lives socially, financially, everything else, and make this move. Um, It's interesting when you look at the breakdown of these people, and that's what this chapter, and that's what the rest of the the chapter is going to talk about. But you see a a couple of things um, that that stand out. Um, Judah has 468 people that move into the city from from their tribe. Um, Benjamin has 928. So between those two tribes alone, almost half of the people come from those two tribes. Now, we're going to talk about why that's important in a minute, uh, because there's a great lesson there. And then we have about 200, almost 300, well, 284, almost 300 Levites that are going to move into the city. So when you look at this, you have a large group of people now that are going to move into the city to stay in the city, and they have all kinds of options. So you now start, and then when you get to verse 3, it starts listing names, and it lists names all the way through the rest of chapter 11, and it lists names from chapter 12 almost all the way down to verse verse 25 or so in chapter 12. So what we're going to do is I want to talk about that whole group of people in there for a minute, and then I'm going to talk about the end of chapter 12 and some lessons for us there. One of the things when you look at this group of people is, first of all, one of the things that you start to see is this idea that you know, I mean, if you're reading it for, to read your Bible through in a year, one of the things that you go is, why in the world did God do this to us? Why did God put all of these names here? And when you read the book of Nehemiah, that's a great question, because here's the thing. In Nehemiah, we deal with 13 chapters, and three of them are full of names. When we look at the little book of Ezra, one whole chapter is devoted to nothing but names, and it's tied to the story. So the question is why, and here's one of the simple principles, but it's an important principle. We'll talk about at the end. People are important to God. You and I could care less about those names, but I guarantee you if it was your family's name in there, 
you would be happy that was in there. Because people are important to God. So I want to talk a little bit about, I want to pull out a couple of names and a couple of things to, to, for us to, to talk about at the end here. One of the things is, one of the names that you see is a guy by the name, mentioned by the name of Perez. Does anybody know who Perez is in the Bible? You see, the story of Perez is a very interesting, but a very, very dark story. Um, Perez was from the tribe of Judah. And if we were to look at this story, if we were to tell the story of Judah in the beginning and his tribe and how this whole thing goes and how Perez was born, here's the reality of it. If we turned it into a movie, it would be rated X. Because you see, the whole story of Judah is tied to a person by the name of Tamar. If you know anything about the Old Testament or if you know anything about the story of Tamar, that involves rape. And then it involves incest. And then it involves all of these ugly things. The whole story of, per, of, of Perez is the story of, and some of you will remember this story if you've read your Bible through. But Tamar ends up having twins. And daddy happens to be her father-in-law. And she ends up having twins. And as the twins are being born, one of the twins sticks its hand out first. And the handmaiden ties a string around that hand to know that was the firstborn. And the other child pushes the other one out of the way, so to speak, and is born first. But he's not the firstborn because he doesn't have the string on his hand. The person who pushed their way through, whose name literally means busting forth, is Perez. And yet, 400 years later, we find this guy as one of the leaders in Jerusalem... And we find God using them and their family in a great way. And yet his whole family history, his whole family story, is this very dark, sordid story. By the way, Jesus comes as a lion out of the tribe of Judah. There's another interesting story, and that is, has to do with the life of Benjamin and his tribe. It's interesting that Benjamin's tribe, which is mentioned here, is really the smallest of the tribes, and yet they send twice the people. They're the smallest group, yet they send twice as many as everybody else, which is an interesting sidelight. And again, Benjamin's story is not a good story. It would not be a movie any of us would want to go see. And yet, there are two very important people who come out of this tribe. One of them is a guy by the name of Saul, who becomes the first king of Israel. The second one is fast-forwarded all the way to the New Testament, and that is another Saul. A Saul by the name of Saul of Tarsus, who you and I know is the Apostle Paul. And it's interesting, because there's some great lessons here that these people, even though they have this really ugly, nasty past... God is able to use them here at Jerusalem and then able to use them later in the, in, the, in the teaching of the Scripture. And there's a great lesson in there for us. Another, we'll get to all the, I'll, I'll tie up the lessons here in a minute. Another thing that's interesting is when you look at the groups that served as, as their group throughout chapters 11 and 12, um, you, see, you see a group of priests, and it's interesting because the priests all have different jobs. Um, one group, a large group, did temple work. Another group basically does, we call them heads of families. They were basically counselors. They helped everybody uh, figure life out, stuff out life-wide. There's another group that were warriors. They literally were the, the, the police force of, the, of Jerusalem. Um, there's a group of, 
Levites, one group works outside of the temple, a second group um, works really as uh, musicians and singers. And I'm going to talk about that in a second when we get to the end of chapter 12. Um, singers and musicians have a big part of this thing. Um, two names that stand out are Asaph and Zeb- Zebutham. And you might notice them from the book of the Psalms because often there's a, it'll say a psalm of Asaph, uh, who was a very important singer um, in the Old Testament. And then you have people who were gatekeepers, um, you had people who um, just served as, as uh, troubleshooters, so to speak, counselors to, to, to the kings and, and the people in charge. And you have all of these people who were mentioned who all pitched in and did whatever they could in their part of it. Then you come to the end of chapter 12 and you have this celebration. Um, and here's what it says, Nehemiah chapter 12. Uh, this is the end of the passage. Oh, no, I cut it off, didn't I? Man, I hate it when I do that. Okay, I'm going to read it to you. Um, normally I run through these. Here it goes. It says now, verse 27 is where it starts. Now, at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, both with thanksgiving and singing and cymbals and stringed instruments and harps. And that day they offered great sacrifices and rejoiced, for God made them rejoice with great joy. The women... And the children also rejoiced, so that the joy of Jerusalem was heard afar off. Um, oh, that's the end of chapter, beginning of chapter 4. Okay, skip it. Go to blank screen. Oh, yeah, there it is. All right, skip it. I already read all that. Good, thanks. Okay, so here's the deal, all right? Here's the deal. They now come to the dedication, the day. The day that they're really going to dedicate this thing, and they're going to have a great big deal. And here's the thing. This is one incredible party. When you go through this, here's what they do. They get a whole bunch of people together, and literally what they do is they start on the, on the top of the wall, on the opposite side of the temple, and they start with two groups. And when you read through this chapter and, and the end of the chapter, here's what they do. One group goes around this way, and one group goes around this way, and they meet in front of the temple, and the whole time that they're going, they're singing and playing, and everybody's involved in this thing. Now, what it does is it does a couple of things. Number one... You have to think about this for a second. If you've got a whole bunch of people marching on top of a wall, okay, and they are singing and playing music, who do you think is going to hear it? Everybody. In fact, it was kind of one of these deals, some, some people say it was kind of one of these ideas of, of, of this um, one group would sing and the other would sing and would come back and forth and kind of build upon each other. But the idea is everybody in the, in the community, all the people who had made fun of them, all the people who had ridiculed them, all the people who said that they couldn't do this, all of a sudden now they're hearing the singing and the celebration of this joy. They have all kinds of instruments mentioned. They have stringed instruments and they have trumpets. So they had 120 trumpet players. Do you know how loud 120 trumpet players on top of a wall is? It's loud. Um, you know, they put nothing on Canadian brass. I mean, it's just it's, it's an incredible thing. And, and, and here's the thing. They march around the thing. And this is significant, and here's why. In the Old Testament, in the Bible, the idea of walking around something was the idea of claiming ownership to it. Uh, it's kind of like how a dog marks its territory, you know, and it's like, you know, this is my area, not yours. It's the same idea. In the Old Testament, people walked around something, they were claiming ownership of it. Um, you remember the story of Joshua at the Battle of Jericho? You remember the children of Israel would walk around the city one time, and then the last day they went around seven times? 
in that culture, that was an idea of claiming ownership of something. It was saying, this city's ours. And they made fun of them and everything else. And in the end, what happened? That city was theirs. God said, this is my city. I'm taking it. I don't care how big you make the walls. And it's interesting because what happens is, as Israel is doing it, as at, the, at the celebration here, they march around the walls on the outside of the wall. What they're doing is they're saying, God has done this, and we claim this, and we're not going to live here, and we're not going to be a part of this thing. And it is an incredible celebration. Um, uh, let, let me take a quick rabbit trail, um, because we're kind of in an area that I think we can address that's important to address, too. Um, we're in a culture in which music and worship um, is debated and talked about a lot in church, okay? And I think you learn some things in this passage. There are some people who believe that, that you know, you should only have a piano or an organ, that you not put guitars and drums and all kinds of instruments on a stage. Um, let, me, let me tell you what I think and what I think this passage even shows. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing sacred about a piano or an organ. Um, there's nothing sacred about an instrument in and of itself that we have to go, you know, oh, you can't, you can't do any of that. We don't, it's not the instrument issue because actually when you look at the Bible and you look at praise and worship and those kinds of things, there's actually 22 different kinds of instruments mentioned in the Old Testament and New Testament regarding worship. So it's not like, you know, <clears throat> and you need to understand this. <clears throat> Put yourself in the historical context. You understand that there was a time in which people really fought a piano being used in worship? Because we only used organs. And and you understand that when the organ came into music in worship, that was a big deal. You know why? Because we only used voices. And so be very careful of trying to go, oh, you know, it has to be a certain way. Okay? Just so you know, I don't have a problem with praise teams either. I, 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 don't, I, don't, I don't have an objection to that. Um, I don't think it fits who we are right now. But I don't have a problem with that. I don't have a problem with instruments on a platform. <clears throat> but let me tell you what you do notice in this passage, and I think this is, what it, this is what's important for us to understand. When you look at the worship and the dedication and the service, one of the things that a lot of people skip over is that the musicians and the people who are involved in the service first of all, purified themselves. In other words, they understood that what they were about to do was serious before the Lord, and they wanted to make sure that their hearts were right with God first. You see, the worship that is talked about here comes from a heart or from the soul. And I think that's the important part about anything that happens in a church from a platform to, to, to people is that first and foremost, it starts in the hearts of the people who are ministering up here. That's the most important thing. And the goal, just like it is here, you're going to see this in a second, the goal is to reach soul to soul. The goal is not soul to emotion or emotion to emotion. There's a big difference. The, the, the goal in worship is for it to touch you at a soul level, not an emotional level. You can have emotion and still reach a soul, but just because you have emotion doesn't mean you reach a soul. Let me give you an example. Those of you who know me, I'm a big Chicago fan, okay? the band, the music band. 
okay? If they are anywhere within two hours driving distance, I have tickets to that concert. It is guaranteed, okay? Um, I do not miss one of their concerts. I go on every year and look at where they're playing and try to justify whether or not I can drive there. Um, I'm a big Chicago fan, right? My wife and I have a song, our song, okay? Our song is You're My Inspiration by Chicago, okay? We, I mean, there is something about that song and us, okay? That's our song. I don't care where we are, and I don't care what the circumstance is. If that song plays, it reaches us emotionally. It does nothing for my soul. It's not like I walk away going, oh, you're my inspiration. I'm so much closer to God. Um, no, it's like, you're my inspiration, honey. Let's hold hands. I'm going to hug you. You know, um, People know I'm not a dancer. Okay. I, I, I partake, I, I, I ascribe to the ironing board method of dance, okay, which is this, okay? My wife will tell you that, okay? My wife grew up around a dancing world, okay? So everything my boys learned about dance, they learned from her. Music would play, and she'd be in the, in the kitchen, and she'd want to dance, and I'd go like this, okay, honey, I'll dance with you. Uh, that's, that's it. There's only one song I will ever dance to, and that is... You're my inspiration by Chicago. That's our song. So if we're at a wedding thing, you know, people go, hey, we're going to play that song. So he gets up and dances, you know. I'll sit through all the rest of them, but that's that's our song. That reaches me emotionally. That's different from reaching me at a level of the soul. Worship should reach us at the level of our soul. And I'm afraid too much music today reaches us at an emotional level, and it's not much different than me listening to Chicago, okay? And that, that, that's where you kind of cross the line. Same thing with preaching. Preaching, if you're not careful, can become entertaining and not reach you at a soul level that works to change your heart and life. And that is a supernatural thing. And so our goal, with anything that happens up here, is to impact us all at the level of our soul, at the level of our life. Sometimes that involves emotions and sometimes it doesn't. But we're always focused on that issue of reaching the soul. One of the things that you see here in this chapter is when these people worship, when these people celebrate, when these people sing, it transforms who they are. Um, They do things they don't normally do. They're standing on a wall now singing as loud as they can. All of the neighbors and the whole world is hearing it, and everybody is on. And then when they meet, it's interesting. You know what they start doing next? They start pouring their heart out and being generous one to another. And they say, oh, there's a need here. We're going to go give here, and we're going to go take care of this, and we're going to do that, and we're going to do that. Because one of the things that you see is a heart that is filled with gratitude from God all of a sudden wants to do stuff for other people. Because you're not focused on you. You're focused on how can I minister, how can I help, what can I do. And that's what you see. So you see this incredible generosity from these people. I mean, we already talked about it in chapter 10. They've already given. But at the end of this celebration, they even give more because they have a heart that is so full for all that God's done that it's like, you know what, what, what the, I mean, it's like, what can we do? We want to do something. We got to do something. We got to, okay, here, we're going to go help this. We're going to do this. We're going to give air. We're going to go take care of this. We're going to do this. We're going to do that because their heart was that full. It impacted their lives in every, which way they go, every area of life. So let's walk up through some things to help us this week. Here's the first one. People matter to God. Two chapters of names. We've already had one whole chapter of names. 
Now, this is the third chapter we've had in the book of Nehemiah. Thirteen chapters and three of them have been full of name. Why? People matter to God. Don't miss that. People matter to God. That's the whole Easter story. For God so loved the world that he gave. People should matter to us. Um, it's not about um, us. It's not about me. It's about people mattering to God. You will not come into contact this week with anybody that God does not love or care about. Every eyeball you see is a soul that's important to God. Don't forget that. Because sometimes it's easy for us to get caught up in our world. This happened to my wife and I, and I'm guilty of this Friday night. You know, we made the mistake of going to Hy-Vee at 5.30 on a Friday night. There's a reason I shop at 11 o'clock in the morning for our stuff, because I can get to Sam's and Walmart, get all of our shopping done, and be out of both of them in a combined time of 30 minutes. And we got behind a lady who decided to tell her entire life story to the two teenage cashiers who did not care and all of the people in line behind her who did not care. And I was so frustrated. And as I'm going through this message this morning, I'm starting to think about this and I'm starting to realize these are people, God cares about her. I wanted her done and moved on so I could get home. But God cares about her, you know. And as I started thinking about this more and more, I started to realize, you know, I got, I've got to kind of step back and realize that, you know what, even the person at work who is frustrating you to death, you, you know a name, you've already got a name in your head, don't you? Yeah, that is the person that God cares about. Don't forget that this week. Second thing, God can use anybody. If you were to pick out of the 12 tribes of Israel two families to use to help repopulate Jerusalem, I got news for you. Benjamin and Judah's tribe would not be the top of your list. They would be at the bottom. Some of you have things in your past that you allow Satan to beat you up over and allow Satan to convince you that God can't use you. And I'm here to tell you there could be nothing farther from the truth. These are people who we would not even go to a movie theater to see their story on a screen. And yet God said, I will take them, and if they will be obedient and they will be willing, I will use them in a great way. And he does. And he uses them in an incredible way. When you look at the genealogy of the life of Christ, and you pick through all of those names, there's some of those names you would never want in your genealogy, much less the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And yet, God says and uses those people to show us that, you know what, I don't care about, God is no respecter of person. God doesn't care about your past, He cares about what you want to do for the future. The whole point of the cross and the whole point of Jesus going to the cross is the idea that God can forgive and move on and use you if you will let Him. And one of the things that you see in this story is between Perez and some of these other people who you and I look at it and go, boy, you know, I, don't, I can't imagine God would want... No, no, no. God says, look, I don't... You let... You be willing and allow me to use you and I will use you. I don't care what your past is. 
And I want to challenge you because some of you, you've got things in your background and you don't want anybody to know about and you don't feel like God can use you because those things are in your background. And I am here to tell you there are 66 books in that, in that Bible that teach you over and over and over again that God will use you if you will let him. And when you look at the disciples alone, there's not a one of us that would have picked those, 11, those 12 guys. Because when you look at them, it's like, what in the world was Jesus thinking? I mean, there were so many more capable people. Why this ragtag group of 12 disciples? In the Jewish world, and we don't have time to get into it, in the Jewish world, you need to understand all of them had flunked out of the religious Jewish schooling system of that day. The fact that they were in jobs meant they weren't good enough to make the cut in the Jewish world. Basically, what happened is they started in a Jewish system in which it would, it would continue to whittle out all of the people until you got to the best of the best. And when they worked all the way through the whole thing, what would happen is usually by the time they got to be a 10, 11, 12 years old, they would basically look at them and decide if they could go to the next step. If they couldn't go to the next step, you know what they looked at them and said? You need to go work for daddy. You need to go learn a trade. This is not for you. The fact that the disciples were all in trades tells me that in the Jewish system of learning to decide who could be a follower of a rabbi, every one of them abandoned it. You know what the one thing a Jewish boy wanted to hear more than anything else from a rabbi when they were that 10, 11, 12-year-old age group and it was a, it was a pivotal point between whether or not they went on to, to learn from a rabbi or what they didn't? was a rabbi would turn around and look at them and said, you, you follow me. Have you ever wondered why it is that when Jesus comes to the disciples and he looks at them and he says, follow me, they just abandon it all and, and, and bail? Because that was the heart desire of every Jewish boy. They wanted to follow a rabbi because that meant that they could do what the rabbi did. And so they were all, all 12 of them were failures in the Jewish system. And when Jesus looks at them and says, hey, follow me, they're like, I'm in. I'm in. You think I can do what you do? I'm in. I'm in. Don't underestimate the fact that God can use you regardless of your past. It's not about your past. It's about what you want to do for him in the future. Third thing that I think you see in this story is everybody has a place. I mean, some people are police officers. Some people are singers. Some people are trumpet blowers. Some people are gatekeepers. Some people are counselors. Um, some people are taking care of the tabernacle stuff. They're washing the stuff up at the end of the day. Everybody has a place. And this is what I would suggest to you this morning. God's got a place for you. God's got a place for you to serve Him. Now, that might mean like it did for these Israelites that you've got to uproot some things. It might mean that God's, God has a place for you to say, you know what, I'm sorry, you can't be comfortable where you are. You know, in my world, you want to know what it was for my world? I mean, God said, you know, I know you're comfortable in the city and I know you like the city, but I want you in, I want you in Holly Springs. Oh, which by the way, isn't on a map anymore. We took it off. It wasn't important enough to put on the state map anymore, so we took it off the map. That's where I want you to be. My Chicago friends look at me and they go, you are insane. Why? They don't even think Iowa is a state. They think it's a planet. <laughs> you know? And, and so I've got friends who are like, you're in where? 
You know, because they always, from the time I was a kid, they always saw me in a city and in a city church. When I was in Sioux City, we had friends who moved out in the country. Okay? Um, Hyatt's, Jeff, uh, uh, Sharon and Cheryl Hyatt. They moved out to the country. I used to make fun of them. I used to say, That's in, what you're doing is insane. Why would you want to cut that much grass? I said, the smartest thing you could do is blacktop the whole thing, paint it green, call it good. I said, why would, you, why would anybody in their right mind do that? And you know what else they did that was insane? They bought an old house, picked it up, and moved it. <laughs> Be careful, by the way, time out, little sidetrack. Be careful what you make fun of people for. <laughs> because God may just go, I'll show you, ah. Now we picked the house up, we moved it, we put it out in the country. And you know what? I love where God has me. I love where God has me. You know why I love it? Because I know that I'm where God wants me to be. And there is so much, and, and you will find the same thing. If you will let God use you and let God put you where he wants to put you, you will find a joy that you could never have found on your own. And I have my Chicago friends. You got to understand, my Chicago friends are like, you know what? You know, you know, why don't you come back to Chicago? You know, their church is here. And da, da, da. you know what I tell them now? I tell them that I would not step down to take a big church down. And I'm going to tell you why I tell them that. Because one of the things that you learn about the Bible, and one of the things you learn about God, God doesn't deal. God doesn't deal with numbers. God deals with percentages. You see that in the story. End of chapter 10, what have the people done? They had just gotten done tithing. In this chapter, what happens? They need to move people in, so how do they do it? He says, I need one out of ten. I need a percentage. And what I started doing a long time ago in ministry is looking at percentages rather than numbers. See? Because if, if I go to my Chicago friends and, and they're talking about it and they're going, you know, well, how big is your, you know, you know how many people you got coming on a Sunday? I go, eh, 175, 200 people somewhere in there. You know, like, oh, that's like a really small church. And I'm like, no, no, a really small church was the 40 people we started with 25 years ago. You know, but here's what I tell them. I said, let me, I said, let's just play the game. You want to play the game? Let's play the game. I said, our target area in the area that we're trying to reach is, I said, you drew a 10-mile circle around the church. I said, we might have 2,000 people in there somewhere around there. I said, on a good day. I said, and this was a long time ago, um, I said, so let's say I have 100 people in church on a Sunday. I said, target area is 2,000 people. I said, that's 5%. That means every Sunday I get to reach 5% of my community. He said, you want, me to go to church? you want me to go to a town in Chicago or an area in Chicago? I said, let's just say it was a really dinky town in Chicago and it only had 100,000 people in it. I said, they have the same influence I'd have a church of 5,000 people. Well, yeah, but 2,000 is a big church. No, no, no. I'd have to have a church of 5,000 people to have the same influence. Why would I step down to do that? That makes no sense. My goal is to reach people for Christ, and I want to have as much influence with the gospel as we can in a community and a place that God has placed us. And I started realizing a long time ago, listen, you know, and now, I mean, look at this thing now. This is crazy. This is insane. And I just shake my head. You know, people go, where are they coming from? I go, I don't know. They just keep showing up. 
you know, and it's great, you know, and somebody, <laughs> um, uh, I, I'll let them tell their story. But anyway, somebody had a great story when they found out how far some of you were driving. They're like, I live a whole lot closer than that. Maybe I need to be coming more uh, often. But anyway, um, it was one of those things where it was like, you know what? No, this is what God's done. And, and I can't challenge you enough along the side. Let God use you. Find a place to plug in. And, and don't feel like it has to be in a church setting. I came to the board a number of years ago, and I talked to him about this. I said, look, I said, I, I, I love this place, and I love these people and everything else, but here's my problem. I said, I'm always talking to church people. All, everything that, I said, everything's with church people. And I said, there's another side of me that has talents and gifts and abilities that I need to be able to use in the community. I said, I can't be all about the church people. And so I went to the board, and I said, you know, I kind of want permission, if it is okay with you guys to spend more time in the community and less time with church people. I said, I want you to know that when I say, hey, look, I can't go see so-and-so, it may be because I've got a meeting somewhere with a, with, a church, with a group in the community. Because my goal was to be a testimony, to, be, to let God use me in, in, in my talents, gifts, and abilities, not just here, but outside of here. And so last week, I look at, I look at, I look at my past week. And, you know, last week, I was involved in a deal in the community. Where I, got to be, where I got to be able to have a testimony. You know, this week, I guess I've got a, community, a meeting that, that, that has nothing to do with church that's in the community to allow me to have influence and impact. Why? Because that's what God's called us to do. We talked about this Wednesday night in Bible study. When, when, Israel meets, when, when, when Moses meets with the children of Israel at the mountain, and, and one of the things that God says is, I'm going to let Israel be my priest to the world. These are the people I'm going to use. And if you know the idea of a priest, the idea of a priest is the priest is the person who represents God to the people. And, and one of the first missions, it's not a New Testament idea, it's an Old Testament idea, was that Israel's going to be my priest. They're going to be my representatives. Peter in the New Testament says, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. You and I have the same job. Here's the thing. You want to know what our job is this week? Our job is that when we walk out of here and we walk into the world and when you go to work and when you go to buy something this week and you're dealing with a cashier or you're sitting at a restaurant and dealing with a waitress or a waiter, your goal is to represent God in such a way that they understand more about God just by seeing your life, just by seeing my life. We're to be a group of priests, if you will, who go about representing God so that the world sees God. And that's what you see here. What happened? Israel, all of a sudden, is now standing on the top of these walls, singing, proud, singing celebrating, praising, um, worshiping, doing all of this stuff. And all of the nations who for six chapters have said, you can't do this, your God's not real, this isn't going to work, da-da-da, is now watching a whole group of people and standing back and going, you know, maybe there is something to what they have to say. Maybe there is something about their God. Because even the unsaved world of that day said what has been accomplished, the glory goes to God. And that's our goal this week, is that people would see Christ in us, that they would see us do it differently. And I, and I want to challenge you because that's what this world needs. And they need people who are generous with their time, talents, gifts, abilities, resources, to be able to say, I'm going to let God use my gifts, talents, abilities, resources to impact the people that he has put in my path every day. And I'm going to challenge you because these people get it. At this point in their history, they get it. 
And they say, they're standing back and they're saying, you know what, we're going to dedicate ourselves to letting God use us. And I want to challenge you to do the same this week. So I end with this. As you head into the week, remember this. God loves people. And they are important to him. All the people you come in contact with this week, God cares about. He is willing to use anyone who wants to be obedient and wants to let God work through them. We are each to use our talents, gifts, and resources so that the world can see Christ in us. And as we serve others, let them see the God that we represent. Let God use you as a minister this week to a world that needs to know our God reigns. Let's pray. Lord, help us.